little awkward this way, but I was hoping to be off my scooter and be able to stand today, but um, I'm just get, I'm not able to yet. But um, I am so touched to be able to um, see you here today and to be able to share my testimony and my thoughts and my study on a magnificent woman, Emma Hale Smith. I can't um, look down at my sisters are here today. I'll start to cry. My, our mom is the one that taught us our whole life to always love and revere Emma. And um, she's not able to come, so I appreciate them representing her. But I ask that the spirit would be here, that I can convey the, the, her magnificent spirit. And I feel that Emma is aware of our gathering and would be pleased to know that we are studying her life and paying tribute to her, such a noble woman. Um, rather than, I'm, this time I'm going to mostly read um, what I've prepared, and so I hope that's okay um, because of interest of time, and there's so much good material. But I'll just begin um, with telling about that Emma Hale was born on July 10th, 1804, to Isaac and Elizabeth Hale. She was the seventh of nine children. Her father was well-known, and he was a well-established um, hunter and farmer, and he was also a veteran of the Revolutionary War. She was very well-educated for a woman, of, a woman of her day, and a skilled horsewoman. Emma was very close to her family, and um, had a good relationship with her brothers and sisters, and was especially close to her father. Her father initially was not religious, and he became converted when he was out walking in the woods one day and saw his young daughter, Emma, praying fervently for his soul and for him, and he was so touched by it that he immediately uh, became a Christian and was converted and was affiliated with the Methodists. Emma and, Joseph, Emma and Joseph met when he was boarding with the Joseph Knight family near Harmony, Pennsylvania. And with the encouragement and help from the Knights, Joseph married Emma, uh, courted Emma. But when Joseph asked Isaac for her hand in marriage, um, he rejected the proposal. He did not approve of Joseph's occupation as a laborer and as a money digger, as he called it. And because he couldn't obtain permission from um, Isaac, from the father, after a year and a half, after their first meeting, Emma and Joseph eloped and were married in South Bainbridge, New York. Years later, Emma wrote, my folks were bitterly opposed to him and being inopportuned by your father and preferring to marry him more than anyone I knew, I consented. Joseph was 21 and Emma was 22. Joseph and Emma's great-great-granddaughter, Gracia Jones, she's written a book and she was the first descendant of, of Emma and Joseph's family to join the church years ago. She wrote this, Whatever attraction drew them together, it was sufficient to hold them through unrelenting persecution, trials, and privations, committed to each other and to their sacred mission, from the day of their marriage until the day, 17 and a half years later, when on June 27, 1844, Joseph was felled by assassin's bullets. Emma's active participation with Joseph in the divine mission he was called to fulfill that is, the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and she was a, a great participant in that, began when she went with Joseph to the hill to retrieve the golden plates. It was midnight on September 21st, 1827. They were just married eight months, 
and Joseph and Emma drove to the hill Camorra, where an angel had revealed to Joseph the plates where the plates were buried. Joseph had been directed by Moroni to bring the right person with him, and he was confirmed that Emma was that person. Emma waited from midnight until dawn um, at the bottom of the hill in a, in a wagon drawn by a horse. Joseph ascended the place near the top where he received the sacred record from the angel Moroni and accepted the responsibility of protecting, translating, and publishing it. This moment symbolically foreshadowed Emma's life as the wife of, the prophet, of a prophet. As her husband's divine missions unfolded, Joseph often scaled the heights while Emma waited somewhere, often alone and with her children. In 1827, nearly a year after they were married, Joseph and Emma moved to Harmony so that he could uh, finish, so he could translate the plates without being harrowed, uh, harassed and, and hounded. Emma must have been so thrilled that her parents invited them to live in a small house on their property for almost two and a half years. And though, though Isaac was very curious about the plates and highly offended when Joseph would not show them to him. Emma became the first scribe of the Book of Mormon, writing for Joseph as he translated with only a curtain between them. She later wrote about this experience. I am satisfied that no man could have dictated the writing of the manuscripts unless he was inspired. For when I was acting as his scribe, he would dictate to me for hour after hour. And when returning after meals or after interruptions, he would at once begin where he had left off without having any portion of it read to him. This was a usual thing for him to do. It would have been improbable that a learned man could do this, and for one so ignorant and unlearned as he was, it was simply impossible. <clears throat> Emma was expecting their first child, and when he was born, he lived only a short time. For several weeks, Emma herself hovered between life and death. <clears throat> Joseph cared for her round the clock, and he was sick with worry. To add to his concerns, Martin Harris did not return when promised with the pages of the manuscript he had borrowed to show his wife. After Emma had recovered somewhat, and at her insistence, Joseph anxiously went to look for his friend and finally went met up with him in New York at the family's home. <coughs> Martin Sorrowful confessed to lo losing the precious 116 pages of the manuscript. Joseph plunged into an immediate depression, staining a sorrow to Martin. Then, must I return to my wife with such a tale as this? I dare not do it, lest it should kill her at once. And how shall I appear before the Lord? His concern for Emma had serious grounds. She would share Joseph's anguish and feel his severe chastisement. It was a dark time for Joseph and Emma to endure a double tragedy, the death of their first child and the lost manuscript at the same time. But they endured, and soon Emma recovered, and, and Joseph eventually was forgiven, and his gift to translate was restored once more. Eventually, the lies and criticisms of Joseph's character, which a local minister convinced Isaac of, caused her father to tell him he would offer them no more protection in his home, believing him to be a charlatan. Upon leaving, Isaac bitterly said to Joseph, you have stolen my daughter and married her. I would have rather followed her to her grave. After failing to persuade Emma to stay, her father's parting words were, no good can ever come of it. When they left Harmony, it was the last time Emma would ever see either of her parents again.
This would have constituted one of the most severe uh, sacrifices for Emma, for she loved her family dearly and longed for their approval. During the next 14 years, Emma lay aside the things of this world, gave up everything, and shared the burdens of her prophet husband as he moved forward to lay the foundation of the kingdom of God. The theme to sacrifice all for the gospel's sake would follow her throughout her life. Years later, in 1841, when Joseph received the revelation on the doctrine of salvation for the dead, Emma anxiously had the ordinance of baptism completed for her father, and a year later for her mother, since they had recently passed away. Typical of what happened throughout most of Emma's married life, they were without a home and relied on the generosity of the saints to take them in. You imagine how hard that would always be, to always rely on others to take care of you, provide for you. They went to Kirtland, Ohio, and stayed with the Newell K. Whitney family. In 1831, Emma gave birth to twins who they named Thaddeus and Louisa, but both babies died within three hours of their birth. This loss caused such sorrow from which Emma was hardly able to recover, losing her first three children. I'm sure she wondered if she would ever have any children. When she and Joseph were deeply grieving, they heard of the death of Julia Murdoch, who, was also, who had also given birth to twins. Their father, John Murdoch, who had five other children, was beside himself with grief. As an act of love for the prophet and his wife, he took the tiny motherless twins to Emma and gave them to the young couple to raise as their own. Nine days later, Emily and Joseph thankfully and legally adopted the infants and named them Joseph and Julia. They were a blessing in their lives, and they felt they were a gift from God. Nearly a year later, after they had moved into the John Johnson home, on a cold night in 1832, Joseph was sitting up with his little son, Joseph, who suffered from the measles. Suddenly, a mob of a dozen men burst into the home, exposing the baby to the bitter cold, and dragged Joseph out of bed, stripped his clothes off, and poured hot tar on his body. They did the same to Sidney Rigdon, dragging him by the heels so that his head hit the pavement over and over again. They said Sidney was never the same after that night because of the damage done. Frantic with fear, Emma ran back and forth from the frightened babies inside to the cold blackness outside, to scream again and again for help. Finally, some neighbors heard her and the mob fled. Later, when Joseph finally staggered back to his house, covered in tar, Emma mistook it for blood, covering his whole body, and she fainted at the sight of him. The rest of the night, Emma and some friends gently peeled and washed tar off of Joseph's injured body. As Sunday services the next day, the next day the young prophet delivered a powerful sermon without reference to the beating and tarring of the night before. From that incident came the first martyr of, martyr of Mormonism. Little Joseph, already ill and feverish, caught cold, and when he was pulled from his father's arms and left in a draft, he died four days later from exposure. Emma was crushed. In, their own, in only five short years of marriage, she had laid four precious babies in their tiny graves. No wonder Emma's beloved mother-in-law, Lucy Mack Smith, who knew her as well as anyone and seemed to only find admirable qualities in Joseph's wife, described Emma's condition. Emma's health at this time was quite delicate, yet she did not favor herself on this account. And although her strength was exhausted, still her spirits were the same, 
which in fact was always the case for her, even under the most trying circumstances. One very difficult thing for Emma to endure was the frequent necessity of receiving charity from members of the church. Often she and her children were forced to stay in homes of other members for months at a time, and sometimes she was shuffled from family to family as circumstances changed, as Joseph did not have time for a regular profession, as he was about the, the Lord's work almost full time. How she must have longed for a home of her own. In all, Emma moved 18 times, lived in 13 houses across five states. Of these 13 locations, only four of them could be called her own. On three of these moves, she had to leave behind most or all of her furniture. On four, she had to move because of disruption caused by neighbors. One, um, two additional occasions, she was driven from her home at threat of her life. Emma and Joseph eventually moved with their daughter, Julia, to an upper room of an old store, stone store that the Whitneys owned. Emma was pregnant a third time, but Joseph couldn't be with her much, serving a brief mission to the east. Three weeks before the baby was born, Joseph wrote to Emma expressing his love and concern, perhaps also fearful that yet another baby would die. He wrote, thoughts of home, of Emma and Julia, rushes upon my mind like a flood, and I could wish for a moment to be with you. I feel for you for I know your state and that others do not. But you must comfort yourself knowing that God is your friend in heaven and that you have one true and living friend on earth, your husband. Joseph rushed home for the birth of their fourth child, but didn't quite make it in time. However, it was a joyful occasion when he returned, for Emma had given birth to a third son, and this one lived. Joyfully, they named the baby Joseph, like the one they lost and after his father. For years, he would be called Young Joseph by the saints to distinguish him from his father. In Kirtland, Emma finally had the real first home of her marriage, a small building attached to the Whitney store. The most exciting event was the building of the Kirtland Temple, and Emma was involved in encouraging sisters to sew clothing for the workmen, housing them on occasion, and also feeding them. Um, soon, she was blessed with more children, although she was not permitted to keep all of them. Again, what a, what a hard thing for her to bear. In 1836, she gave birth to Frederick Alexander, and then in 1838 to Don Carlos. In 18, um, let's see, sorry, Frederick Alexander in 1838 and Don Carlos in 1840. Uh, he later he just lived 14 months and died in Nauvoo of malaria when a lot of them died. He was also taken, which caused her a lot of grief because the others were new babies she didn't know, and this child was 14 months old, as well as the Joseph that she lost and knew well. She then had a stillborn son, born in 1842, and David Hiram was born in 1844, born six months after Joseph's martyrdom. Incredibly, Emma had nine pregnancies, adopted two children, and six of them died in infancy. Losing her children was the greatest sorrow of her life and something she had to endure again and again. Besides raising her family and supported Joseph in his calling, there is no doubt that Emma put her whole soul into the effort of helping to lay the foundation of the kingdom of God. Back in 1831, while she was in Harmony, 
the Lord honored Emma as the only woman to have an official revelation directed to her and canonized as scripture. After Emma's baptism, Joseph received in her behalf what is now known as the 25th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Though Emma may not have fully comprehended it at the time, it lay her soul open before the world. Through it, we see the many facets of Emma Smith, her strength and her weaknesses, as well as our own. Because each, each of us should examine the section and apply it to ourselves, as the Lord closed the revelation by saying, This is my voice unto all. If you could turn to DNC 25, we'll go through this wonderful section that is dedicated to Emma. DNC 25, beginning in verse 1. Hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God while I speak unto you, Emma Smith, my daughter. For verily I say unto you, all those who receive my gospel are sons and daughters in my kingdom. This declaration to Emma that she was indeed the Savior's daughter would be a comfort to her during the difficulties of persecution and privation. How wonderful for her to know that she was a spiritually begotten daughter of the Lord. This was such a powerful um, affirmation of her. And, and the Relief Society has published a book called Daughters in My Kingdom that is fantastic. If you haven't read it, it's the history of, uh, brief history of Relief Society, and, it's, and um, it is worth reading. Verse 2, this is still in 25, verse 2. It says, um, a revelation I give unto you concerning my will, and if thou art faithful and walk in the paths of virtue before me, I will preserve thy life, and thou shalt receive an inheritance in Zion. This was miraculous because Emma was never harmed in any way through all of the uh, persecutions and all of the harassments when others around them were, and her life was preserved. She lived to be 74, 35 years longer than the prophet. Verse 3, thy, um, <clears throat> Behold, thy sins are forgiven thee. <coughs> thou art an elect lady who am I have called. Now, elect means doesn't mean special, it means chosen or set apart. Joseph, Joseph later explained to her that when she became the first president of the Relief Society in 1842, it was in fulfillment of this designation because of her righteousness. She was called and elected to fill that position long before she was the president of Relief Society. So that um, was in fulfillment of that elect lady calling. <clears throat> um, verse four. Murmur not because of the things which thou hast not seen, for they are withheld from thee and from the world, which is wisdom in me in a time to come. <clears throat> Murmur not. And for those who knew her well, they knew that she wasn't a complainer or whiner, as some of her critics have claimed. But this could have been in reference to her not seeing the plates, even though she was a scribe. The plates were constantly in her home, but she was not permitted to view them. <clears throat> she later said... <coughs> Sorry. During the translation, the plates often laid on the table in our home <coughs> without any attempt at concealment, wrapped in a small linen tablecloth, which I had given Joseph to fold them in. I once felt the plates as they lay on the table, tracing their outline and shape. They seemed to be pliable, like thick paper, and would rustle with a metallic sound when the edges were moved by the thumb, as one does some, sometimes thumb through the edges of the book. I did not attempt to handle the plates, other than through the linen cloth. 
I was, I did not, um, I was satisfied that it was the work of God and therefore did not feel it to be necessary to do so. I knew that he had them and I was not especially curious about them. I moved them from place to place on the table as it was necessary in doing my work. There's no way I wouldn't have <laughs> pulled that off and taken a look. That's incredible that she only touched them and felt them, but she gave her word she would not look, and Joseph trusted her, and she never did. That was amazing. Emma's testimony of the Book of Mormon remained strong <coughs> until her death. Someone asked her later in life if Joseph could have written the Book of Mormon privately, pretending to translate as he dictated. <coughs> After a lifetime of reflection and just a few months before he died, she wrote this. It sounds like a real cut, but she was... I'm telling the truth. Joseph Smith could neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter, <clears throat> let alone dictating a book like the Book of Mormon. It's because he wasn't learned as she was. The Book of Mormon is of divine authenticity. I have not the slightest doubt of it. It is marvelous to me, a marvel and a wonder, as much as to anyone. Emma was then and still remains a credible, intelligent, and powerful witness of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon, a testimony she never denied. <coughs> the Lord, knowing her thoughts, that it may have been hard for her when so many witnesses had seen the plates, especially when her friend Mary Whitmer, who had been attending to those working on the translation, was shown the plates unexpectedly by a mysterious old man. Hadn't Emma given her all as well, she may have wondered, rather than chiding her. This counsel from the Lord to murmur not must have reassured her the Lord was mindful of her struggle and there was a divine purpose in not seeing the plates. Verse 5. So this verse, I believe, is the most important um, because it contains what I view as Emma's main mission and purpose in the restoration and um, a mission that she fulfilled. Let's see. What verse did I say that was? Oh, verse 5, sorry. And the office of thy calling shall be for a comfort unto my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., thy husband, in his afflictions, with consoling words in the spirit of meekness. This was her office. Her office was to comfort and support her husband. That was her calling and her mission. Um... Her calling to support her husband, the prophet, in his monumental responsibilities and frequent afflictions of being his refuge and his earthly comforter at all times. This was not an ordinary job for the faint of heart. The greatest powers of hell would be unleashed against her and her husband, and in this she did not falter. A letter Emma wrote to Joseph while he was in Liberty Jail after the saints had been driven from Missouri gives us a small glimpse of the comfort she provided Joseph and her resolve to support him regardless of difficulties and persecutions. She wrote in Liberty Jail, Was it not for the direct interposition of divine mercy, I am very sure I never should have been able to have endured the scenes of suffering that I have passed through. But I still live and am yet willing to suffer more, if it is the will of kind heaven, that I should for your sake. No one but God knows the reflections of my mind and feelings of my heart when I left our home and almost all of everything we possessed, excepting our little children, and took my journey out of the state of Missouri, leaving you shut up in that lonesome prison. 
this is not well known. My sister Jenny told me about this. So we don't have time to go into it. But it was actually Emma's letter in, uh, to Joseph in Liberty Jail of unconditional support and love that ultimately allowed Joseph to feel comfort and to be able to receive wisdom, have it be a conduit from heaven, to receive wisdom from God at perhaps the lowest moment of his life so that he eventually revealed to Joseph what we know, now know as the 121 and 122 sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, which are some of the most personal and touching of his suffering and of God hearing and answering his prayers. And this was made possible because of Emma's support and love uh, for him that allowed him to finally open himself to this revelation. Verse 7, another unusual aspect of the Lord's revelation to Emma was in the um, verse that says, And thou shalt be ordained under his hand to expound scriptures and to exhort the church according as that shall be given unto my spirit. It would have been highly unusual in 1830 for any woman to expound and exhort in church, for women simply did not take visible or leadership roles in churches at that time. The Lord knew she was a leader and would have an important role of her own, not just as a support to Joseph, but in also building the kingdom of God through the wonderful organization of Relief Society. Verse 8, here Emma is told um, that he shall lay hands upon thee and thou shalt receive the Holy Ghost, and thy time shall be given to writing and to learning much. So she was told to study and to learn and um, she was very well versed in the, in the scriptures. The Lord entrusted her with much responsibility. This also applies to us. The Lord expects his sisters and the women, as well as men, to be well versed in scriptures and to be able to teach with testimony and confidence and power and with the Holy Ghost, which Emma had and which is available to all of us. We also have access to the gifts of the Spirit, which gives us great power and strength. <clears throat> President Kimball said, of women's responsibilities to learn the scriptures. <coughs> I fear the children cannot overcome the ignorance of their mothers. We, it's our duty and responsibility as mothers and grandmothers to exhort and teach the scriptures in our home and not leave it to the fathers alone. Verse 9, Thou needest not fear, for thy husband shall support thee in the church. And this was a reference to a, a woman and mothers were concerned about making a living for their family, which was difficult with jo uh, Joseph's assignment as the prophet and leader. Though he wouldn't make a living as a farmer, as many did, he would labor for the church, and the Lord would ask them to rely on the goodwill and the generosity of church members, their whole marriage, which would require much humility. Verse 10. Um, this is one of my favorite scriptures, and this is a pearl in the Doctrine and Covenants. <clears throat> and verily I say unto thee, that thou shalt lay aside the things of this world and seek for the things of a better. Isn't that a marvelous statement? It could be a, a mission statement uh, for all of us to lay aside the things of the world and seek for the, those of a better. This was Emma's mantra. <clears throat> time after time, as Emma moved from where they were living and left their belongings and moved in with others, she must have reflected on this line from the Revelation. Emma did exactly that um, in, in order to build the kingdom of God. Then in verses 11 through 13, this is uh, when she was asked to um, 
do have a, she was given a big responsibility. Verse 11, it shall be given thee to make a selection of sacred hymns as it shall be given thee, which is pleasing unto me to be had in my church. For my soul delighteth in the song of the heart. Yea, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and it shall be answered with a blessing upon their heads. <laughs> Wherefore, lift up thy heart and rejoice. Oh, sorry. And um, it just ends there about the, <coughs> about the assignment that she was to do. And she, it took her five years to do that. She wasn't able to start for two years because of her responsibilities and the persecution. But she eventually, through uh, the help of W.W. Phelps, was able to put it into book form. We have um, many of her, over 30 of the songs that she chose in the hymns book today. Verse 14. Um, Let's see. Okay, we'll do 13 and 14. Wherefore, cleave, lift up thy heart and rejoice, and cleave unto the covenants which thou hast made. Continue in the spirit of meekness, and beware of pride. Let, let thy soul delight in thy husband, and the glory which shall come upon him. To say continue indicates that to, uh, by the Lord that she already had the spirit of meekness, and the Lord wanted her to maintain it. And here it is where the Lord, who knew her so well, warned her, of, as he warns us all in our personal patriarchal blessings of our shortcomings. Beware of pride. Let thy soul delight in thy husband. Perhaps her pride, caused by a tremendous amount of heartache, and may have interfered later with her judgments after Joseph's martyrdom. And we'll speak more on this later. This warning was made manifest to the world through this section. And like all of us who know our own faults and sins, Emma may have worked and struggled with the events that were in the events that were to come. The Lord's warnings proved to be perceptive, for pride and a lack of meekness seemed ever to be her stumbling blocks. Verse 15 and 18. As with all of us, blessings are based on righteousness and keeping the commandments. And this revelation is given and applies individually to us all. Verse 15, keep my commandments continually, and a crown of righteousness, righteousness thou shalt receive. And except thou do this, where I am, ye cannot come. And verily, verily, I say unto you that this is my voice unto all. This is the Lord's voice um, unto us to keep the commandments and, um, and to endure to the end. Though this through this glorious revelation, it is the Lord. Um, it is evident the Lord had much in mind for Emma to accomplish, a comfort and support to Joseph in his calling. This was her life mission, a scribe for the Book of Mormon, a leader and teacher, and eventually the first Relief Society president. And an important assignment to compile a selection of sacred hymns for the church to sing as a form of worship to God. How much trust and responsibility God gave Emma, an elect lady, the wife of the prophet of the Restoration, and how hard she must have worked to fulfill her sacred assignments. And we've all just celebrated um, throughout the world the 175 years of Relief Society being organized. As we see a picture up here, this, this picture is fantastic. If you haven't seen it in the West Building, it's a, I was trying to get it, and then I decided um, better not try to take it and display it. But uh, we took a picture of it instead, but you need to go see it. But it's of Emma instructing the saints, uh, the sisters, with Joseph. And the church, as you know, was, was organized just a few days ago on March 17, 1842, 175 years ago, in the upper floor of the red brick store. 
Emma was chosen by the sisters to be the president in fulfillment of DNC 25, and she was ordained, the, wor the word the Lord used in that section, by the prophet. In Joseph's words, I will organize the women after the pattern of the priesthood. The church was never really perfectly organized until the women were thus organized. After some discussion, the sisters decided to call themselves the Female Relief Society of Nauvoo. Pre uh, president Emma Smith declared, we are going to do something extraordinary. We expect extraordinary occasions and pressing calls. Six weeks later, when the prophet Joseph Smith taught the sisters at length, he said, I now turn the key to you in the name of God, and this society shall rejoice, and knowledge and intelligence shall flow down from this time. This is the beginning of better days in this society. And um, I am a witness as well as all of you are, that the work in the Relief Society from that time until now is extraordinary. And all of you sisters, as well as sisters all across the world, are doing extraordinary things. Um, so, many, so much knowledge and intelligence has been manifest in our lessons. The Holy Ghost is present, and we have used the gifts of the Spirit to bless others in need and to perform invaluable service throughout the world. We are now the largest and the oldest women's organization in the world, and that's an incredible thing to be a part of and to be grateful for. We can hold our Relief Society up to the world as a shining example of our motto, Charity Never Faileth. I hope we will all, always uh, speak about that with uh, friends who are, are critical of women in the church, that uh, we have this organization that was begun so long ago and is the largest in the world, uh, run by women under the, under the pattern of the priesthood. And it is a testimony of what God believes of women. As um, Bruce McConkie said, that Jesus Christ is the greatest champion of women. For women, the prophet unlocked opportunities for, the, uh, for women in the church to play vital roles in the work of building the Lord's kingdom. Sisters would eventually receive ordinances and make sacred covenants that would help their, them prepare themselves and their families for eternal life. Emma endured much persecution that disrupted her personal life and much of her suffering she had to endure alone. She tried to accept this, but she had moments of weakness, like all of us do. One day, when Joseph had been away for a long time, Jesse Crosby, their friend, dropped by to see if Anna needed any help. In a rare occasion, she let down her guard, allowing a poignant glimpse into her heart. Emma unexpectedly burst into tears and told him if the persecution would cease, they could live as well as any other family in the land. How she longed for that, a normal family life. Many times there were, there were that she waited, not knowing if Joseph was dead or alive. At Far West, all the saints were told to not expect for a moment that they would ever see their leaders again. There were even occasions when she was incorrectly chose, told that Joseph had been killed and that he was dead. She thought that she would never see him again. How often she must have had to summon up her undaunted faith to quell her fears. Her mother-in-law, Lucy Mack Smith, who is also courageous and well-revered re by the saints, paid her a tribute of which few women are worthy. I have never seen a woman in my life who could endure every species of fatigue and hardship from month to month and from year to year with that unflinching courage, zeal, and patience which she has ever done. For I know that which she has had to endure. 
She has been tossed upon the ocean of uncertainty. She has breasted the storms of persecution and buffeted the rage of men and devils, which would have borne down almost any other woman. What a tribute to Emma. Though Lucy Mack had many children, she chose to live with Emma the last four years of her life, and Emma cared for her as her own mother. They were exceptionally close. Joseph learned he could count on Emma, and it was evident to him and all who knew them well that his love for Emma was deep and unconditional. Once when Emma risked her, his own, her own safety to visit him in secret when his life was in, in danger, he was in hiding, he later wrote, with what unspeakable delight, when I took by the hand my beloved Emma, she that was my wife, even the wife of my youth and the choice of my heart. Many were the reverberations of mind when I contemplated for a moment the many scenes we had been called to pass through, the fatigues and the toils, the sorrows and sufferings, and the joys and consolations which had strewn our path. Again, here she is, undaunted, firm, unwavering, unchangeable, affectionate Emma. I love that description that he gives her. I've entitled this talk, Unwavering and Unchangeable Emma, <coughs> Undaunted Emma. <coughs> Though she suffered personally, Emma was very compassionate to all she met. She took countless orphans, friends, strangers, travelers, and homeless people not only into her home but into her life. When the saints were draining the swamps of commerce, many became ill with malaria. Emma opened her door to them, her home to them, and even tended to the feverish outside in the yard where Joseph had pitched a tent to make them more comfortable when the house was full. She performed the service of an angel of mercy so devotedly that she won the hearts of all the saints. Joseph finally rose from his own sick bed and healed his own household and those in the yard and then moved like the Savior did and healed everyone he touched. It was a day of miracles. Finally, when they were settled in Nauvoo, Emma must have rejoiced when they had their own residence in the homestead and then in the beautiful mansion, the Nauvoo house, in what was considered the finest home for perhaps 50 miles around. It became the social center for the entire church and was used as more as a public facility than as the Smith's private home. While Joseph was imprisoned, Emma held creditors at bay, resolved disputes, tended the children, took care of the, fa uh, took care of the family and their property, and entertained visitors, making them feel welcome, despite whatever personal crisis she was facing. There were some happy times in Nauvoo, the city whose name meant beautiful. At one time, there were 15,000 saints in Nauvoo, and their beloved temple was being built in an area that no one had previously wanted. Emma became the first woman ever endowed in the Nauvoo temple, and she and the other sisters were workers there. It is no secret that Emma struggled with plural marriage, and this was the most difficult thing and a great trial in their marriage. I won't speak much on this because we're going to have a, a lesson on plural marriage. But um, as sisters, you can imagine the trial that she went to, through when this was introduced and how difficult that uh, would have been for her. Um, Joseph was told many times, Angela had appeared to him many times and told him to move forward with the said order. All sources show that Joseph held back until an angel with a drawn sword stood before him and declared that if he delayed fulfilling the commandment, the angel would slay him. This was a most difficult test of their marriage, and Emma went from being vehemently opposed to it to trying to understand and to reconcile to it. 
Wendy Topp, who studied her greatly, wrote, Yet the elect lady did not reject the revelation on pure marriage in totality, though at times she fought it doggedly. At other times she tried desperately to humble herself and accept the new revelation. She actually gave permission for Joseph to marry some of his wives and even chose some of them for him. Some witnessed the terrible struggle she felt. Maria Jane Johnson, Johnston, who lived with Emma and helped her, recalled Emma looking very downcast one day and told her the principle of pearl marriage was right. Emma knew she had heard her dispute with Joseph. What I said, Emma told her, I have got to repent of, uh, lamented Emma. <coughs> the principle is right, but I am so jealous-hearted. Now never tell anybody that you heard me find fault with that principle. We have got to humble ourselves and repent of it. As I said, you can imagine her struggle. Many of us struggle with life, uh, through life with one or two trials, challenges, or commandments that seem so difficult and overwhelming. I'm so grateful that the Savior will be our judge, aren't you? That he knows us well and not only knows our actions, but our thoughts and the intents of our heart to do well and to obey. Though Joseph vacillated back and forth at the time of his martyrdom, she seemed hardened and set against plural marriage. Persecution in Illinois had reached its height, and the prophet and Hiram were afraid for their lives, as Governor Ford had declared martial law in the city of Nauvoo and had sent for thousands of troops. To add to their fear, Governor Ford had threatened that Nauvoo would be destroyed and many of the Latter-day Saints exterminated. He had been ordered to give himself up in Carthage, but Joseph had a premonition that if he went to Carthage, he would never return. Joseph and a small group of leaders decided it would be better for Joseph and Hiram to escape to the West. Joseph genuinely believed that the mob just wanted Hiram and himself. And if they disappeared and they couldn't follow them across the Rocky Mountains, they would surely give up and leave the saints alone. Yet a small group, as a small group, made preparations to escape to the West. Some of their friends believed their prophet had abandoned them in in their hour of great stress and the military buildup. It was a trial for some who believed their city was about to be under siege, and some called Joseph a coward for trying to leave. He believed if he went to Carthage, he would not return, but the saints had seen him arrested and tried again and again, and he was always delivered from his enemies, and the governor had given his personal guarantee to protect the prophet, though Joseph had no faith in his promise. Emma wrote a message to Joseph as he waited and pleaded for him to return and surrender. Weighed down with foreboding and hurt at the rejection of his followers, Joseph bleakly said, If my life is of no value to uh, to my friends, it is of none to myself. As Joseph left for Carthage, he kissed each of his children and then turned solemnly to his wife. Emma, can you train my sons to walk in their father's footsteps? He asked her this three times, and three times she responded, Oh, Joseph, you're coming back, the third time with tears in her eyes. She said after this, it was the worst that she ever felt, and from that time she looked for him to be killed. Before Joseph left for Carthage, Emma wanted him to give her a blessing, but there was no time to do it, so Joseph told her to write out the best blessing she would ever think of, and he would sign it on his return. He never returned to sign it. Emma wrote what she called, These Desires of My Heart. Part of it reads, I desire the Spirit of God to know and understand myself, that I may be able to comprehend the designs of God when revealed through his servants without doubting. 
I desire with all my heart to honor and respect my husband as my head, ever to live in his confidence, and by acting in unison with him, retain the place which God has given me by his side. Though I can't spend much time on the martyrdom and the tragic events that transpired, when the bodies of Joseph and Hiram were brought back to Nauvoo on June 28, 1844, eyewitnesses told of Emma's grief. Emma sat in her chair, her face covered by her hands, as she sobbed uncontrollably. Her first words were, Why, O oh God, am I thus afflicted? Why am I a widow and my children fatherless? Thou knowest I have always trusted in thy law. A friend comforted her and said that this affliction would be the crown of her life, to which she quickly answered, My husband was my crown, and for him and for my children I have suffered the loss of all things. And why, O oh God, am I thus deserted, and my bosom torn with this tenfold anguish? Young Joseph remembers his mother saying, O oh Joseph, Joseph, my husband, my husband, have they taken you from me at last? Years later, Dominic Cunnington, an eyewitness, claimed he heard Emma ask Joseph to forgive her. After they had prepared the bodies, Emma tried six times to walk across the room and approach their bodies, but she fainted and was carried out insensible in the arms of two attendants. All their married life she had feared this moment, but there was no preparation for such a terrible loss. The agony and sorrow that were felt will never be forgotten by those who were called to pass through it. So why um, this, this marvelous woman who has gone through so much and what she has suffered and what she has endured, her testimony, her acting as a scribe, her being a part of the restoration in a very critical role, why are some critical of Emma, knowing that what she has passed through? There is not adequate time to go into it, but many things occurred after Joseph's death. There were disputes between Emma and the Twelve over what was Joseph's private property and what belonged to the church, as it was hard to distinguish between the two. She believed the Joseph Smith translation was part of her personal property, and she would not give it to, to the saints, to Brigham and the saints, and kept it, and, and it ended up in the, in the RLDS church. Um, there was no precedence when Joseph died. No one knew what would happen. We didn't know that a new prophet would be called. The Lord had to personally change the appearance of Brigham and his voice so that the saints would recognize that this was the next prophet. So they didn't know what was going to happen um, and if the church would even go on. She did not initiate her son becoming the next uh, president of the RLDS church 15 or 16 years later, as it was said, but she did support him, um, and stood by and supported him. She definitely had a class with Brigham Young, and they had many misunderstandings and misrepresentations between them for years that caused a lot of bitterness on both ends. For reasons unknown after Joseph's death, whether to, whether to protect her children or because the acknowledgement of it was just too painful, her opposition to plural marriage crystallized into an unswerving denial that Joseph Smith had ever lived the principle. Some have suggested that after her husband's death, Emma suffered an emotional breakdown, which caused her subsequent re rejection of the church and of, its, and of plural marriage. Whatever happened, Emma did not go west with the saints and was unwilling to follow the next prophet, Brigham Young. 
though she never turned her back on the church and never on the book, uh, though she did turn her back on the church, though never on the Book of Mormon and on the authorized leaders of the church, Emma committed no grievous sins and remained compassionate and kind. The consequences were that her entire posterity were not in the church, yet they are now beginning to return. And that is a marvelous work and a wonder in itself. Her life after Joseph died was so different. After a licensed clinical therapist believed due to the death she was suffering from losing all those children and her husband brutally murdered that he reasonably concluded she did not travel west to avoid losing any more of her children. I believe that to be the case. Given the losses she suffered, he wrote, it appears to me that Emma managed quite well. Deep sadness pervaded Emma's life in later years. Her great-granddaughter, Emma Bell Smith Kennedy, remembered a melancholy grandmother. Her eyes were brown and sad. She would smile with her lips, but to me, as small as she was, I never saw the brown eyes smile. I asked my mother one day, why don't grandma laugh with her eyes like you do? And my mother said, because she has a deep sorrow in her heart. A maid of Emma's recalled that she would go upstairs to her room every evening after chores were done and sit in her rocking chair and gaze sadly out the window at the sun going down over the Mississippi River. No one dared approach her or attempt to dry the tears that would roll softly down her cheeks. Emma eventually married Louis Bitterman, a man who was not religious at all, totally different from Joseph Smith. Some believe she married him for protection. Though he cared for her and was a decent man, he was also a drinker and was not faithful to her. Um, uh, Louis Bitterman and a woman named Nancy Abercrombie um, had, a, had a child. And uh, this, the, Nancy came to Emma several years um, after, uh, four years after, and said, do you know who I am? And Emma said yes. She knew that she was... Um, who he had an affair with, and he said, would you take my son Charles and raise him? He was four years old. Emma took this child and raised him as her own. Imagine the compassion of that. And then she invited Nancy to work there with her so she could be close to her son, as she wasn't able to care for him. On her deathbed, she made Lewis and Nancy promise they would marry so Charles would have this, wouldn't have the stigma of illegitimacy, an act of true compassion. Joseph and Emma's great-great-granddaughter felt, this is Gracia Jones, that whatever happened after Joseph's martyrdom, um, it has been long since resolved in the life, in the life up above. Uh, between, Brigham and jo uh, between Brigham and Emma, between the things that happened, um, it has been long since resolved, and that um, she counts her grandmother as a great blessing to this church and in her life. I believe that um, because of, I believe this also, and because of two dreams or visions that she had right before she died, I believe that the Lord's um, acceptance of her and, and mercy and of her sacrifice and her mission was fulfilled. Emma lived to be 74 years old, 35 years longer than Joseph. Shortly before her death, Emma reported a vision to her nurse that Joseph appeared and said, and you can just imagine this, this happening right before she died. Emma, come with me. It is time for you to come with me. So I put on my bonnet and my shawl, and I went with him into a mansion. One room was a nursery in which she found a baby in a cradle. I knew my babe, Emma said, my Don Carlos that was taken from me. I swept up the child into my arms and cried for joy. But when I recovered, I stopped to ask, 
Joseph, where are all the rest of my children? He assured her, Emma, be patient and you shall have all of your children. Emma then related that she saw a personage of light standing by the side of her beloved husband, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Emma's children were gathered together before she died. Early in the morning of April 30th, 1879, her children heard her call, Joseph, 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 thinking she was calling for her son, Joseph III. They awakened him, and he went to her side. He saw his mother raise up and extend her left arm. Joseph, they heard her say, yes, yes, I'm coming. A few minutes later, she was gone, apparently with her loving husband, Joseph, who had come to get her. Um, I was mentioned about uh, Wendy Topp, this um, sister, wonderful sister, who in the late um, 70s began to study Emma because she discovered that there were many um, unsympathetic views of her, and that some, most all the historians that she read were male and couldn't maybe fully understand and empathize with her struggles and her challenges as a wife, woman, and, I mean, and mother. And um, she realized that many of the uh, early saints had been tainted by those, um, that, that maybe her memory had been tainted by the early saints who had become embittered, um, felt betrayed and forsaken by the wife of the beloved prophet. And because of this uh, bias, many unkind and incorrect information it became to be attached through the years to her name. So in the late 70s, she felt to, um, to do some presentations about her. And she said all throughout the church, there were little scatterings of um, sisters that felt to represent Emma um, her full life as a, as a human, as a, as a person that, who suffered as a mother and wife. And she said, I sought not to excuse her failings, but to help others empathize with them. And so this simultaneously inspired movement to reclaim the reputation of Emma Smith uh, went through the church and is still, is still active, and many have been deeply moved by her contributions. Wendy Topp concluded, I believe the profound lesson of the life of Emma Smith, however, is the manifestation of the triumph of God's far-reaching mercy and love over human failings. Unlike many heroines of the restorations and heroes, she stumbled and was spiritually and physically left behind. Like Emma, Wendy wrote, I also grapple with sins and shortcomings that threaten to overcome me at times, and I am grateful to be able to hold to hope that the Lord will do everything it can to find mercy for me and for Emma as well. I have pleaded with members of the church to refrain from judging her unfairly and condemning her just as they should any other fellow saint or human being. She wrote, let us then remember Emma, our sister, as any of us would wish to be remembered by future generations with gratitude for her sacrifices and contributions empathy for her struggles and shortcomings, and a generous eye toward her internal possibilities. Um, in my study this last uh, month or so, I, I've always loved Emma. I mentioned in the beginning because our mom told us, taught us to love Emma and taught us that she pities the person who criticizes or judges Emma because how could anyone do that? Um, I have felt... Um, her spirit with me many times when I've been writing, and I, I feel she is aware of our gathering. Um, she was a, a wonderful woman and saint. Was she perfect? No. 
Did she struggle and have faults like we did and sins? Yes. Would she maybe have done things differently if she had a chance, perhaps? But I think she did the best she could. And I think that she, after uh, Joseph was martyred, I don't think she had anything more to give. I think her mission was accomplished. And the Lord will judge her, the rest. And I'm grateful that it's him because he is, he is merciful to, her, to Emma and to all of us in our sins and our shortcomings. I love that beautiful music that Rebecca played. Uh, Rebecca is the daughter of one of our friends, and she played Oh, How Lovely Was the Morning and some of those restoration hymns. My, my prayer is that you will um, admire and try to emulate the strength and the courage that Emma Hale Smith had, that she stood by the prophet. The restoration would not have been able to come about had she not done this, I believe. Joseph was strong, but he needed her, and the Lord knew that. And he gave, he gave Emma to Joseph for a comfort and support, and in that mission, she was glorious. I bear you this testimony, and you feel the spirit here telling that these things are true, and that our, our sister Emma, wouldn't it be wonderful to meet her one day and rejoice with her as she has all of her children, and that she is with her beloved husband, I pray. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We have one. Um, Lucy Mack Smith said sorry. of her daughter-in-law, Emma, I have never seen a woman in my life I'm sorry, that's my who fault. would endure every species um, of fatigue we, we and have, hardship from uh, month to month. Shannon Sunberg is going to be playing um, the piano. And Casey Higginson will be singing this and if you listen to the words carefully i think my favorite part or the part that i felt to convey to you is the part that says about her sorrow when she felt that others thought she had lost her faith because we know she did not lucy mack smith said of her daughter-in-law emma i have never seen a woman in my life who would endure every species of fatigue and hardship from month to month and from year to year with that unflinching courage, zeal, and patience which she has ever done. For I know that which she has had to endure. She has been tossed upon the ocean of uncertainty. She has breasted the storms of persecution and buffeted the rage of men and devils, which would have borne down almost any other woman. Your heart might break 
With the world on your shoulders When the nights had grown colder You seemed to weather every storm With the Queen's grace When you lost your husband When you buried your children I'm sure the angels stood in reverence As you prayed How much can one heart take? How much can one heart take? Never had a day to call your own When so many needed your warm heart as a home Whispering a mother's lullaby as you sat alone by the fire With the world on your shoulders When the nights had grown colder You seemed to weather every storm With the Queen's grace When you lost your husband When you buried your babies I'm sure the angels stood in reverence as you prayed How much can one heart take? How much can one heart take? With the world on your shoulders When the nights had grown colder You seemed to weather every storm With the Queen's grace When you lost your husband When you buried your children I'm sure the angels stood in reverence As you prayed And I'm sure your heart breaks when some people still say Somewhere down the line You lost your faith How much can one heart take? How much can one heart take? How much can one heart Our dear Father in heaven, we express gratitude for the opportunity